Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. To celebrate the opening of Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World on December 13, 2015, exhibition curators Jens M. Daner and Kenneth S. LaPatton present some 50 works that survey the development of Hellenistic art as it spread from Greece throughout the Mediterranean between the 4th and 1st centuries BC. Through the medium of bronze, artists were able to capture the dynamic realism, expression, and detail that characterized the new artistic goals of the period. Power and Pathos brings together works from world-renowned archaeological museums in Austria, Croatia, Denmark, France, Georgia, Great Britain, Greece, Italy, Spain, and the United States. On view through March 20th, 2016, the exhibition presents a unique opportunity to witness the importance of bronze in the ancient world when it became the preferred medium for portrait sculpture. Power and Pathos has occasioned uh, some questions or confusions. Power, I think especially here in Washington, you know what power is. And power, we're talking in the show about political power, artistic power, and cultural power. Uh, Pathos requires a little bit more in terms of explanation. Pathos is a Greek word, and it's the root of our term pathetic, but it doesn't mean weakness. Uh, it, It can mean suffering, but really it means experience. And so power and pathos of our title, they're not oppositions. They're different aspects that often go together. Because in this period of Greek art, and it brings me to that that other uh, term that is sometimes confusing, Hellenistic, which I'll explain more, we have a great change. There's political and cultural change after the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, and the period runs from the death of Alexander in 323 BC to the Roman conquest of Greece when Octavian, who became the Emperor Augustus, defeated Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. So roughly three centuries historically, but art doesn't change instantly in response to political events. So the exhibition itself stretches back into the fourth century BC and on into the first century into the Roman period. But what happens in this period is that there are great changes, not only socially and politically, but in terms of art. In Greek art in particular, we're used to seeing the golden age, the works of Phidias and Polycletus, the great names. Think of the Parthenon and the Athenian Acropolis. In literature, Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles, in philosophy, Plato, Aristotle. This is the fifth and fourth centuries going into the early Hellenistic. Aristotle was Alexander's tutor. And in art, there is greater idealism. Think of the cold but beautiful, perfect ideal figures. In the Hellenistic, things change, and we get this emotion, expression, uh, and we get really the invention of what we think of today as portraiture, of images that really look like the people that are represented, warts and all. Portraits have furrowed brows, crow's feet, wrinkles. They're not perfect and beautiful. They're individualized. And they're individualized to such a degree that we think we can even see into their emotions, to see behind the mask. And this is the art. This is illusion. 
We don't know what he's thinking, although we can project onto him and we can read his emotions. And this is the first time really this happens in the history of art. And this is one of the great advances of Hellenistic portraiture, Hellenistic sculpture. But the show is remarkable because it's focusing on bronze. And bronze is the premier medium for sculpture in this period. We're used to seeing Greek and Roman marbles because they survive. Bronzes tend not to survive, but bronzes which are molded uh, and poured, cast, the molten metal is poured in, in, into matrices to make these, uh, allow a degree of detail and elaboration like these very finely inlaid, uh, incised eyebrows that really make these statues vivid. And we have in the show, for the first time ever, and I think probably for the only time in our lifetimes, more bronzes, more ancient bronzes in one place than ever before and then ever again. We have about 50 statues from over 30 museums in uh, 11 countries on four continents. And we have to be incredibly grateful to the lenders for entrusting us with these masterpieces because most of these statues, the rare survivals today, live in splendid isolation in their museums on a pedestal, spotlit in a room by themselves or with one another. And our concept was to bring them together and show them in a broader context. And we're so incredibly grateful to the lenders who have given them up, some for up to a year, so they could travel to all three venues and we could see this. There have been changes, not all of the objects could go to all of the venues. There are uh, four spectacular pieces here in Washington that weren't in Florence or, or Los Angeles, so these were a great joy for Jens and me to see here, and unfortunately there are a few pieces that were in Florence or, or Los Angeles that aren't here, but the core of the show is here. Now, our talk today, we're not gonna walk you through the exhibition because you can go upstairs and across the concourse and see it yourself. Rather, we're gonna give you some background about how the exhibition came to be, some, some pointers on how to look at it, and, and Jens is gonna give you a little bit of behind the scenes about installation. And so I'll be talking for another uh, 15 or 20 minutes, and then I'll turn it over to Jens, and then we'll have time for your questions. So, one of the, the questions is, again, power, pathos, I've explained. Hellenistic, I've begun to explain. But how did this show come to being? How, how did we do this? And I'm still kind of amazed that we've managed to do this. And the show originated with the Getty Museum's cultural agreement with the Republic of Italy. Um, some of you might have heard, I don't know, it wasn't such a big deal. The Getty had some trouble with Italy a few years ago. <laughs> Okay, uh, th th this, this was resolved and the, uh, the very wise head of Italian archeology span at the time, Stefano De Caro, paired the Getty with the Archeological Museum of Florence, which is one of the great archeological museums of the world. How many of you have been to Florence? Most of you, yeah. How many of you have been to the Archeological Museum? Yeah, a good number, but not nearly so many. That's because it's overshadowed there in the city of Michelangelo. But it is the place where the Medici archeological collections are housed. Amazing Greek vases from Etruscan tombs, Etruscan paintings, Etruscan sculpture, the Medici gems, and a fantastic collection of ancient bronzes. 
And we began a program with Florence where we had their greatest bronze, the Camira of Arezzo, out to the Getty Villa in uh, 2008. And we were going to have further spotlight exhibitions. But as I mentioned, Jens and I thought, why not, instead of bringing these things one at a time and continuing to show them as isolated ma masterpieces, what if we tried to do something on bronze and brought them all together? So these four statues, all masterpieces of the Florentine collections that all belong to the Medici, all known since the Renaissance, are here in Washington together for the first time. The, on your far left, the so-called Arringatore, or the Orator, one of the few statues in the show. We actually know who it represents, uh, Aule Metele. His name is actually inscribed in Etruscan on the hem of his garment, and you can see that. And, and he's not waving hello to you. He's actually making a speech or making an offering. And he has, again, these very intense personal features. When you get in the show, he has the wrinkled forehead and the crow's feet and this intense expression. We have the Athena from Arezzo, recently uh, re-restored by the uh, Italian authorities uh, from her various fragments. She now has uh, gray epoxy inlays. Bronze, as I'll talk further, uh, is an artificial metal. It's, it's not an element, it's an alloy, it's mostly copper but it's also lead and tin. And all of these pieces have weathered and changed their aspect over time, depending on where they were buried, for how long, and also how they were treated upon coming out of the ground. And in the Renaissance, pieces were often uh, rather heavily restored. You could see better in the flesh that the Arringatore has a modern finger, and the Minerva, of course, has been pieced together from fragments. We also have the famous Idolino from Pesaro, uh, a fantastic statue thought for many, many years to be a bronze original from ancient Greece from the fifth century, now recognized as a late Roman piece decorative uh, for uh, rich senators. And the one that was known for the longest time is the Medici Riccardi horsehead, newly conserved for the exhibition, known to Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and all those Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> it, this inspired the Gatamalata. It's a stunning piece. We don't know where it's from. It first appears in the drawings of Donatello. Uh, it has Renaissance uh, restorations. The whole collar is uh, added in the Renaissance. It was turned into a fountain at one point, and it was cleaned just before the show. And now, if you look closely, you can see traces of gilding on its surface that have never been seen before. So we had these four statues we were looking at, and our thought was, well, what do we do with these if we add three in the Getty collection? And what we realized is that all of these come from the Hellenistic period. This period between uh, the death of Alexander, as I said, and the birth of the Roman Empire, one that's usually overlooked and for a long time was considered somewhat degenerate, uh, a decline from the high classical, from the art of the Parthenon. But as I said, it's a period where we get the beginnings of portraiture, we get new genres, we get more images of women than ever before, although unfortunately few survive, and we have just a few in the show, but it was an important new genre. And the Hellenistic age, uh, in some ways was very much like our own. It was the period when Alexander, after his father had conquered Greece, conquered Asia Minor, Egypt, and swept across Western Asia all the way to the borders of India, 
spreading Greek culture, and that's why it's called Hellenistic rather than Hellenic, um, kind of meaning Greek-ish. Meanwhile, in Italy, which is off the map here, Rome grew from a city-state to first conquer the peninsula, then southern Italy, Sicily, where Greeks and Phoenicians have settled, and then Spain, Carthage, North Africa, and by the end of the period, Rome conquered the whole world as known then, this Western Mediterranean world. So it's a kind of global society. People are speaking Greek, they're speaking Latin, they're speaking Etruscan, they're traveling around. Interestingly enough, many of the new finds in the show were found in shipwrecks because the art was being carried back and forth and we know that artists moved. So this is a global society and by the end of the period, we also have a kind of art market that's like our own. Most of these works were not created as works of art for museums. They were created to commemorate important people to, as offerings to the gods. But by the end of the period, they're being bought and sold. They're even being forged at high prices. So there's a lot similar to our world today. It's a paradox of the show that of the tens and thousands of thousands of bronze statues that we know were made from ancient literary sources and statue bases that litter uh, archaeological sites, whether it's Olympia, the entrance to the stadium, or Rhodes, or Delphi, or Rome, or Pompeii, or Athens, very, very few survive because the metal could be melted down and recycled, turned into other statues, turned into swords, shields, helmets, buckets, hinges, who knows? And we've lost you know, all but the tiniest percentile of these statues. How many survive? Uh, a number recently has entered the press, 200. I think that might be optimistic. It depends on how you count. The Aringatore, the Minerva, the Italino, those are full statues. The horse head's a head, so let's count that. But what about a hand or a foot? I don't know. But if, if 200, I think it's generous. We have in the show 50. They're not only a large number of them, they're pieces of the highest quality. And what we've lost just isn't here. Um, we open the show with a, this stone block, which is like a statue base, limestone. It has cuttings for the feet of a statue that have been hacked out of the stone block so the statue could be carried away and recycled. Bronze was also money. There was gold coinage, silver coinage, and bronze coinage. So we don't know when it was taken, when it was melted down. But what's important about this block, the reason we brought this block all the way from central Greece, from Corinth, is because it has an inscription on the front that tells us the name of the sculptor who made it. It says, Lysippus Ep, Lysippus Epoese. Lysippus was the Michelangelo of the Hellenistic period. He was the favorite sculptor of Alexander the Great. We have numerous ancient writings about him. We have descriptions of his statues. We're told that he made over 1,500 statues in his lifetime. He was incredibly prolific, and not one of his statues survives. They've all been melted down. And this is as close as we can get to an original by Lysippus, although we have emulations of his work in the exhibition still done in antiquity. So this is a reminder of how much we've lost. And what we have, we have really because of chance, because of the volcano that buried 
Pompeii and Herculaneum in AD 79 that buried statues like this Apollo in ash so it wasn't available to be melted down. And we have several pieces from Pompeii and Herculaneum. Or pieces that were smashed in earthquakes, like this amazing bronze of an athlete from Ephesus, erected there in a bath in the first century AD. In 262 AD, this beautiful marble building that surrounded it collapsed in an earthquake, fell on the statue, smashed it into 234 pieces, and it lay there until the 1890s when it was excavated and restored by a Viennese sculptor, Wilhelm Stern, who used over 1,800 screws to put together all the fragments of the statue and then filled it in with plaster and then filled the hollows with cement. So these things, um, you know, survive through catastrophe, paradoxically. Uh, also, through city sack, uh, this torso comes from Vani in the Republic of Georgia, one of the more exotic pieces in the ex exhibition. Remember that map of Alexander's conquest going all the way uh, to the borders of India. And, of course, uh, as I mentioned already, shipwreck. 20% um, of the objects in the show were found underwater, uh, some in the 19th century. Uh, in the center, you see the Gettys victorious uh, athlete, uh, as he appears today, more or less, as he appeared covered with barnacles that preserved him when he was pulled out of the sea from fishermen. And on the right, I show you this uh, amazingly dynamic moving figure without head. We don't know who he is. We can guess at what he's doing. Where he was set up, where he was going, we don't know. Fishermen in 2004 netted him 500 meters beneath the sea, and we're only beginning to study him. So in this show, we not only have a wide range of survivals, we have pieces that are known since the Renaissance and pieces that came out of the water as recently as just 10 years ago, which for archaeology is incredibly new and very exciting for us. Now, when uh, these statues have uh, come out of the ground or come out of the water, they don't look very much like they did in antiquity. And even after conservation, which my colleagues uh, in our conservation department have taught me is very different from restoration, uh, it's, it's cleaning, it's consolidating, it's not replacing, but even after conservation, they don't look the way they looked in antiquity because bronze is not green. Bronze is bronze. These statues were a beautiful, bright, shiny, golden yellow color. Uh, and the color could vary depending on the alloy and depending on the finish, but it could approximate this tanned skin of people in the Mediterranean. And it's gone green or blue or red, depending on how it's corroded, how it's weathered, whether it's been underground in acidic or alkaline soil or in lava, whether it's been underwater in seawater or salt water, and how uh, the colors, how it's been treated after coming out of the ground. But these statues also had 
inlays and additions that made them much more lifelike, just as we now know that ancient marbles were painted to make them more lifelike. So here you see details of two statues. Uh, the one on the left was found underwater, the Apollo from Piombino, the one on right from the Torso Vanni, and you can see uh, these copper inlays for the nipples that are showing up red, the lips and the eyebrows. The Vanni torso has lost its copper inlays, but you can see the cuttings where they originally are. So I encourage you as you go through the show to look really closely at the surfaces and to extrapolate from one statue to the other. Most of the statues in the show have hollow eyes, and that's because their original eyes have been lost, but a few have them, like the man from Delos. And these are constructed, and they'd make the, the faces much more vivid, much more immediate. They were made of stone, marble, or dark limestone, sometimes glass, colored glass, obsidian, or metal. They were set in packets surrounded by copper sheets here, whose edges could be trimmed to make lashes. And this is an eye in the Getty collection, not in the exhibition, but gives you a sense of that uh, vividness of the inlaid eyes. And even tear ducts could be distinguished. The Delos head has a different kind of now sugary material for the tear duct, and I think it might have been colored pink glass. So these were very, very vivid and very lifelike. Uh, here's another head uh, from Italy, now in the Cabinet de Medaille of the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, well, actually now upstairs, but uh, you can see he has the best preserved of all eyelashes. He has stone eyes, the uh, tear ducts were in a different material. Uh, he had in one of his eyes, not this one, the other one, uh, a ring of colored glass around the iris and would have had iris and pupil. And looking at him from the inside, because these casts are all hollow through the lost wax technique, you can see the packets for the eyes. Also, the lips were inlaid in, in copper to make them vividly stand out against the face. This head from Libya, now in the British Museum, from the side of Cyrene, also has the inlaid eyes and eyelashes, the inlaid lips, but he actually preserves his ancient teeth, which were bone. Originally, they would have been white, of course. They've now gone black. And from the inside, you can see how they're locked in these hooks for this whole mouth assembly. So these things were made to be very, very vivid. Uh, they were first modeled uh, in, uh, in wax or clay, molds were made around them, bronze was poured in, and then additional inlays or additions could be made. So it was a complicated process. Many of the pieces in the exhibition will look to you as if they're fragments, and some of them indeed are fragments, but many of them, most of them I would say, are actually components. You can see this head found in 1997 in the, in the See near Kalamnos in Greece on your right. He has his inlaid eyes and glass that have kind of disintegrated. He has parted lips, his teeth don't, aren't preserved, but you can see his neck, it's not broken. This is a finished edge with a notch in it that would be set on the body. 
this uh, general found again in a shipwreck on the coast of Italy near Brindisi, likewise, this is not a break. This is a cast edge, and he would have worn drapery you know, over one hip, diagonally across his body. These things were made in pieces because it's easier to cast smaller units of bronze than, excuse me, than a big unit um, if you're carrying hot molten metal, it's dangerous. And also, if you make a mistake in the casting, it's easier to redo the foot or the arm or the head than the entire statue. Also, and Jens will talk more about this, if you're making things in molds, you can mix and match your molds, like flip books. Lysippus could make 1,500 statues because he wasn't making every single one from scratch. And this is a famous Athenian red figure vase from the century before the Hellenistic period that shows a founder's workshop. You have a worker at the forge. You have here a worker who's hammering, attaching the arm to a jumping figure or a runner. And the head is between his legs to be attached. And on the, hanging from the wall are a pair of feet that could be models for casting to make multiple pairs of feet. So this was done not on an industrial scale, the things weren't mass produced, but they were made in additions. We're obsessed today with the idea of an original versus a copy. But this is a Renaissance and later notion. Words like original, copy, replica, variant, they have value for us or they're pejorative. But for the ancients, they were interested in making statues, and it didn't matter so much until late in our period where we have the idea of old masters. And I think if we want to think of ancient bronzes, they're so rare today, we think of them as the originals, but they're part of additions, just like art photography. No one worries that this photographic print by Ansel Adams, there's another one that's slightly different. The same thing happens with bronzes, and Jens will talk more about that process. Uh, bronze wind cast, and in Florence, we visited a modern foundry. It comes, uh, the models are made in wax. The wax model is invested in a clay investment mold. That's fired. The wax melts out, which is why it's called the lost wax technique, and bronze is poured in. After casting, the bronze looks something like this. It has to be all the casting gates and funnels need to be cut off, and then it can be polished up, and then it can be patinated. It could be colored with acids, with the sweat of hands, with urine, and then inlays can be added. But through the use of molds, multiples can be made. And as I said, these bronzes all have a different look depending on how they were treated in antiquity, what their alloy was, where they were buried for thousands of years, and how they've been treated coming out of the ground. The statue from Brindisi was part of a shipwreck that was really a scrap ship traveling around the Mediterranean, and it sunk in Brindisi with lots and lots of bronzes on it. And if the ship hadn't gone down, they would have all been melted. There was so much bronze on the ship, covered with barnacles, that the pieces were sent to different conservation labs. And the head and the body were only recognized as belonging to the same statue after conservation. And that's one reason they look so different. Other statues might be greener. The Arundel head from the British Museum has been known since the Renaissance. It was repatinated and made black. So again, you've got to supply the bronze color. 
You've got to supply the eyes. You've got to supply the lip inlays. This is how we opened the show in Los Angeles, where it looked very different than it looks here, a different building. Uh, we had a modern building uh, by Richard Meyer. Jens will show you more photographs of our installation. It also looked very different in Florence. So we're excited to see it in its third uh, iteration. In Los Angeles, we opened with the Arringatore as this intercultural object. He looks like a Roman. He's inscribed in Etruscan. He uses Greek technology. We talked about uh, survival with the Lysippus base. And our third major theme that runs through the show has to do with replication and multiples that I've spoken on briefly. And now I turn it over to Jens. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Ken didn't want to do the live accompaniment on the piano while I was talking. <laughs> so, um, okay, we can go ice skating on the rink in the sculpture garden uh, and be back for questions. Um, uh, welcome to you from me. I take over um, right away, not to interrupt, um, to disrupt the uh, uh, presentation further. And uh, with this look into the galleries at uh, Getty Center, uh, we, uh, uh, I wanted to zoom in on this one aspect um, that was already touched upon a couple of times, uh, namely the uh, question of what bronze, the status and the value, the practicality, or the reason why why bronze, you know, would have been uh, could have been chosen um, as a medium um, over marble, and one um, of the. Um, Subcurrents. One of the narratives in the exhibition that we um, pursued uh, in our concept was really um, to bring together, as many exhibitions do, uh, closely related works uh, in one place to study them together, to see them together, to understand them better. And uh, here is a perfect example um, for um, that kind of pairing. And it's these two weird objects. Uh, we call them herms. They are kind of aniconic, abbreviated, kind of stylized um, images, originally of the uh, Greek god Hermes. Um, uh, they're used as boundary markers and kind of you know, protective um, devices. Um, and they are. You know, it's a pillar with a head on top, and then there's genitals attached to the front. Um, but here, in these images, we, what, what we have is not Hermes, but, but uh, heads of the, of, of, a god of Dionys, of the god Dionysus. And these are so interesting because we see immediately how closely related they are, like just two of the same, um, you may say. One of them. Uh, I'm sorry, um, this one here um, on the left was found in 1907 in a shipwreck off the Tunisian coast. Um, and it's named after the Zeit Maria. And it's been famous since, you know, for over 100 years. And the one on the right uh, is not known to us before the 1970s when it uh, occurred, when it showed up in the, the Swiss art market and was um, acquired by the Getty Museum. So these two, the relationship between these two has always been seen. You cannot open any uh, book 
on ancient bronzes without actually seeing the two illustrated side by side. But in this exhibition, it was really the first time that these two um, were, were brought together into the same space. And uh, Carol Matouche, who's here with us uh, today, is probably the most eminent uh, expert on, 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 on these two herms and has studied them intensively and extensively. And what uh, she and uh, colleagues who work in conservation and in science um, have actually figured out is that these two bronzes must in fact come from the same ancient workshop. Now this is a very steep uh, kind of claim to make um, for anything in art history. And, uh, and you know there are the art historians, art historians spend uh, careers in attributing and reattributing the same painting. Um, here, how was this determined? Now, what we, what we often do in the study of ancient bronzes is to look at the metal composition. Bronze is a man-made material, um, which is good because then, you know, it's like investigators, you leave evidence. Um, other than, you know, if you have a block of marble from a quarry, you know, there's much less evidence. And uh, so it's an alloy that's made of copper and tin and often lead. And so the composition of this alloy uh, can be analyzed by whole sorts of different uh, technologies. And so the proportion of copper towards lead and so on. Uh, and that was done um, independently of these, two, of these two works. And it turned out that um, their composition are so close as uh, to be a match. And so you can think of the alloy of bronzes as something like their fingerprint or their DNA, um, if you like. And this, this match does not only, um, you know, it not only includes these main elements that were actually mixed together, copper and tin and lead, and that were controlled by the founders who made the alloy, but also trace elements. So metals that come in sort of vestiges of percentages, but are detectable by modern uh, technology in the sciences, but uh, are not, um, so, so they cannot be controlled. They come into the alloy with, as impurities, as it were. And in this case, we have, a, there's, there's a couple of, of those, uh, you know, of those trace elements, uh, mainly uh, cobalt, uh, that um, stand out. Once, because they're particularly high compared to other ancient bronzes, and two, because they're, they're very similar in their percentages. So that cannot be, as we understand it, a coincidence. The only explanation that is probable and that uh, Carol Matush has given us is that these bronzes must have been produced in the same workshop at the same time from the same batch of metal uh, basically in the same pore, being cast almost like, you know, within you know, a very short period of time. Now, the bronze from the shipwreck in Madia does have uh, a very faint uh, uh, inscription that was discovered on the, one of those stumps where, where the arms are, and uh, it's the signature of an artist known otherwise, uh, Boethos of Chalcedon, and that gives us a date um, for uh, this uh, bronze in the second century BC, and B, 
uh, of course, the ability now uh, with, with all the other scientific evidence to attribute um, this piece to the same workshop and uh, as well, the same artist, or at least the workshop. And the workshop would have been, you know, the artist's workshop, like, you know, Lysippus had a, a large workshop operation. And that is really uh, extraordinary because, um, A, we don't have many uh, ancient bronzes to begin with. Uh, we have only three, and that have, as far as I can uh, know in the Hellenistic period, that have an artist inscription. All of them, uh, by the way, are in the exhibition. And so the likeliness that we have sort of two from an edition that would have been maybe much bigger, or we don't know, a series, let's call it a series, it's not a mass production, but a series, um, is, is, is very, very small. Now, when we uh, go on and really compare these things, and that has been done uh, in ways like experts who would, who would travel to Tunisia and, or would see one of these works at an exhibition elsewhere and then go and study the others. Some people like Carol who were very, very in, intimately familiar with them. Uh, that was described in the literature, but you could never really do it with your own eyes. The moment you put these two very similar things together, what happens is that you start to see the differences. And that is a wonderful effect in exhibitions that I notice happened uh, here. Uh, and uh, you may test this out um, when you go through the show. Is you think like there's just two things of the same, and then you move on. Now I think what happens is you you think these are the same, but you end up really comparing. Um, you know, where is Waldo style, uh, and and or find three differences, and and then you go back and forth, and you end up looking at each of the pieces, each of the individual pieces, longer than you would have if there wasn't a second one or a twin in the room, and that is extraordinary in insofar as it allows us to to see new things, to you know confirm old ones, old discoveries or observations, and see you know, if, they, if, if they hold. And, but also to find out about you know, the new questions arise. Sometimes it's not, exhibitions are not done to necessarily to answer questions as, as good as this is, and there will always a few questions be answered, but also to pose new ones or to know how you wanted to pose uh, a particular question, how to how to phrase that question in the right terms so that it becomes productive in research and scholarship. And when we looked at these two, and uh, the slides have now been up um, for long enough, as we had kind of a chance to see and, 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 and look at these differences. And uh, many of these differences uh, concern the way these ribbons that form this turban um, are done. And one, uh, the one from, the, uh, from Tunisia, uh, is actually a lot more elaborate. And what you can't quite see here um, is that many of these loops are, in fact, open. Uh, and, and, and the one here, you know, from the Getty, those, those, those loops are either closed, some of them are not there. This one here has additional, has a grape leaf attached to it, missing on that one. You see other, you know, smaller differences, the way these, uh, the, the, the curls of the, of the braids falling down in the back um, is done in a different way. Uh, uh, some of these ribbons taken slightly different courses, um, the, the uh, you know, differentiation of of different textures and all of this. So we think of one as kind of, you know, a, 
a more, you know, either sketchy or a more simplified version of the other. So something has clearly happened. If you do work in series, like workshops obviously have done, um, you have the chance to modify uh, and to, to alter or to simplify. The question that arose out from this was, which of the two um, was done first? The one that the artist signed, sort of like the super elaborate and detailed one, the one that took a lot more effort, or was it that in fact an elaboration of a more you know, simple, um, sketchy version? Both of them ended up uh, being cast, obviously. So these are questions that we cannot yet answer, but I don't think it has been posed in quite these terms before, before we were able to see and look at both so closely. Uh, and there are other examples um, in the exhibition uh, where we, uh, we put things together for them to be compared the first time in the flesh, in the bronze, as it were, uh, like these two uh, weird images of Apollo. Uh, one of them we saw earlier for, for its inlays. We have uh, here, too, an assumption that they made sort of like be made from similar, you know, obviously from a similar model, uh, but they're quite different uh, in size and in a lot of other details, proportions and so on, uh, that it's hard uh, to imagine how they would have been done at the same time or even, you know, by the same people. Uh, some model obviously was out there that was followed and, uh, and that, that, that gave you know, what, what is so interesting about it that these are actually not in Hellenistic style. Uh, these are things that, that use a style that is at this time uh, already, you know, 400 years old. Um, so it's this kind of retrospective style uh, that is used f for both of them, but in a very different way. Um, and uh, so these are, these are all more discussions that now, more debates that arise uh, from the comparison. And uh, here, uh, uh, Pompeii uh, uh, conservator uh, Giuseppe Zolfo uh, and our uh, facilities at the Getty uh, showing what actually this one of the, these Apollo statues had in his hand. This is like kind of a, you know, supports tendrils for, for a tray. Um, this statue was found in the 1970s in Pompeii and it carried um, you know, two of these tendrils and on top of it would have been a tray maybe made out of wood uh, with lamps. So, so, so he, this, this, the statue or the figure provided uh, lighting to, uh, uh, to a dining room uh, in, the, uh, in that villa, in, in that house in Pompeii. So extraordinary, whereas the other one uh, may, have been, may have been a dedication uh, to a sanctuary but using some of the same figure. So what does this tell us about reproduction, about the use of models, about uh, replication? Uh, to sum this up, um, we, I would say like the bronze, you know, if you look at the bronze, no bronze is an original because by the nature of the casting process, it's already, you know, to use the, the term, the conventional term, a copy of something else. The original would have been that wax, you know, that red thing can show it in the modern foundry that, that, is, that is lost. So we don't have any of the originals anyway. So the, the prime example somehow in, in, in the show was um, these images of an athlete um, that, for which several bronze versions um, exist. 
this in itself, again, uh, extraordinary. We had some, many of these versions in the exhibition. Uh, and this must have been an image that was so famous that it was copied hundreds of years later, or was cast in bronze again centuries later, uh, uh, like you, know, you would do a, a modern copy today of uh, Michelangelo's David. And uh, so it was popular, and it was reproduced. And Ken mentioned the art market that developed uh, in the first century uh, uh, BC and that you know, for, the, for, for Roman luxury villas and for, for, for their patrons. And so we have several versions of an image of an athlete that we consider was from the fourth century. Now, this, uh, here we see a view of the installation in, in at Palazzo Strozzi in Florence. And we see this uh, remarkable juxtaposition, uh, unfortunately, that was, was exclusive to Florence, uh, that included the bronze from Vienna, um, the one that was found in Turkey, and a marble uh, in the Uffizi Gallery uh, with weird restorations. But, uh, but it was a very striking uh, you know, juxtaposition, and in addition, uh, there was a torso here at the end, and here um, again in detail. There was done in a stone uh, uh, called basanite or, or you know, basalt, uh, and uh, from Castel Gandolfo, a material that we believe uh, was chosen for its ability to, uh, to emulate um, the effect of a bronze uh, in its surface quality, in the sheen, in the uh, kind of ability to uh, incise it with a precision that uh, the white marbles, which are much softer, uh, don't allow you also because um, the surface quality is, this is, it can be polished to a different degree and it has that matte uh, sheen that reacts to the light very similar um, as, do, uh, as does bronze. So an important um, uh, work, obviously, there are 10 more stone versions of it that we know about. And there must have been hundreds more here, by the way. Uh, oh, I show the next this head here in the right corner. Uh, uh, I show you in a second. Uh, here's a bit more about that particular athlete, um, the Uffizi marble version on the left. So what is he doing originally? He was not looking at a vase uh, like the what the Renaissance restoration suggests, um, but he was holding a strigil, a cleaning instrument to scrape off the uh, dirt. Uh, dust, uh, sweat uh, after the competition from his skin. Uh, we, yes, that's what that would have looked like. And uh, none of the, the sculptural versions have it preserved, but we find it in the hands of similarly depicted uh, athletic figures in uh, ancient iconography. And uh, so there's a whole question of who to attribute this with. I'm not going to go into this. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as an apoxiomenos, which means uh, the guy who scrapes uh, his skin with a strigil. And here, coming back to the question of replication, we had the chance at the moment where we installed the exhibition to really compare a tool uh, and head side by side. One is from the fully preserved statue that was found uh, in the 1990s. In, uh, in the Adriatic uh, off the Croatian uh, coast uh, here uh, on the left, and the other one uh, in, uh, in Texas, uh, known since the 18th century, but it's not clear where it ex exactly com uh, comes from. And if you see the two side by side, they're really like, you know, you can again you know, mistake one for the other. 
And uh, just right now, I had to double-check my own caption to see that I don't tell you which one is which and the wrong one. But they also, apart from the typological you know, similarities in the hair, you know, where each strand you know, goes and the direction of those, um, the profile, uh, which I also had the chance to measure, and they're really within a millimeter of one another, although we have no reason to believe that they come from the same workshop at all, Yet, they have a similar way of the way they are uh, attached to the body. Can address the question of sections and how things getting assembled at the end. So this was a very, was a very distinct way of doing this under the jawline because that you couldn't quite see it from the front. It helped sort of conceal where the cut was and then it was either welded or soldered uh, in place. Um, and that's often also where, you know, these, the fragments or the segments separate and we don't have the body uh, uh, for this head. We're investigating this further and more research is coming out of this which we are hoping to publish with our colleagues in Vienna and in uh, uh, Croatia and in Fort Worth. So now I wanted to, to round things up. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of a, uh, of a glimpse in the behind the scenes preparations uh, for uh, the exhibition. A lot of these loans had to have sort of their custom solutions so they could be, they could travel uh, at all and they could be mounted safely. Oh, I did a mistake. Nope. I think I ran out of time. Oh no, the, the, no, no, that's not what it is. The video I was going to show you is going to begin now. And that shows the assembly of a special transport cage made for um, the athlete from Vienna. So that's a time lapse of this effort. <laughs> so what is noticeable about this, as a comment as it goes on, is as, as this is being done and assembled, a new kind of a, a technology of doing this, um, allows people to move the statue without actually ever touching it. The only thing that touches the statues are these kind of blocks with this white material. This is a, a kind of a foam, a very stiff um, a styrofoam um, that is machined uh, to be the perfect negative um, of the sections where it touches the statue. And that was achieved by using a digital scan, um, 3D scan, and then a machine shop in a, a, a fabrication shop in Los Angeles um, did uh, these foam supports, and they fit to the statue perfectly and allow it to stay in place without moving within the cage uh, at all. And all you touch and then pick up on is the is the cage, but it has to be assembled and then uh, you know disassembled for every station. That took about two days, but that was the first time. Now they can do it in two hours. <laughs> Back to the. A PowerPoint, and there was also a tribute to the, the people, specialists uh, at the Getty Museum, they, um, uh, including mount makers, including conservators who were, uh, who were involved in this very long uh, process. But this was the solution that allowed the statue to travel at all. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, the, the, the colleagues in Vienna, as much as they wanted to be part of the show, would not uh, have sent the statue, and particularly they wouldn't have sent it um, across the Atlantic. So 
Oh yeah. So now a few impressions. This is actually how this statue that we just saw being caged um, arrives at Palazzo Strozzi in, in Florence. The, the cage is uh, sort of tall enough um, that it, had to, it didn't fit in any of the elevators uh, in that Renaissance palazzo. It had to be brought in through the window in the tiny courtyard. Um, and that is back in, in, uh, in February. And then here is a, a, just a quick impression of what the show looked like there uh, in that uh, a remarkable building. And then in uh, the summer, uh, this is preparations for the show being installed in Los Angeles. Uh, the Arringatore being put in place. Uh, here's our designer, um, Ellie Glynn, and overseeing the application of graphics. More statues and sculptures have arrived. Uh, best moment for any curator who does an exhibition. It's like Christmas when you unpack these boxes. Then some of the pieces also needed special preparations in terms of mounts. And here was a, the Apollo from Pompeii, you remember, was one that was very, we were not very happy with the way it was mounted because it was, it was kind of off kilter. And it looked like it was gonna, you know, wanting to lean over. And um, for our comparison with the Piombino Apollo, we wanted it to, to, to stand as, as straight and as, you know, correct as possible. So what we did um, together with the conservator from Pompeii was to prepare new kind of interfaces, like basically giving him souls uh, um, to, uh, to correct some of this kind of wonky nature of the statue um, that might have actually resulted from sloppy assembly work uh, in, the ancient, uh, in the ancient workshop. I'm not passing the judgment, but he has sort of that, that kind of <laughs> odd qualities about it. And so we, we did this, and then we, we cast these interfaces in, 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 in resin, and that is the moment where the statue actually gets to, to be installed. Um, and then this one, the Idolino from Florence, uh, took particular efforts to, uh, to put in, in, in place. Now, you know, many of you know that Los Angeles, uh, more than um, Washington and more than Florence, um, deals with seismic activity, earthquakes, and that's something that complicates our any the installation, particularly three-dimensional objects uh, in our spaces. And many of the objects in this exhibition required uh, the use of what we call base isolators. These are structures like this that allow sort of you know the lateral movement of the ground to be you know be buffered and uh, compensated so that a lot of the impact of the earthquake doesn't get transferred to the statue, but it's important to make sure that the statue is firmly attached to the top frame of this hardware. So, and that was something the 500-year-old base done in the Renaissance specifically for this statue did not provide. It just simply sat there on a tiny ledge on top. So our mount makers devised an internal uh, structure um, that decoupled the base uh, from uh, the statue while being invisible at the same time, but it takes sort of the weight and the, uh, you know, and, and anchors uh, the figure itself to the pedestal and the isolator at the bottom. Um, and here you see that uh, happening. Here's that internal uh, structure. So here we have an internal cage, not an external one. <laughs> and here you see that in place. Uh, and that is the tiny ledge on which uh, the statue usually sits, and we were told it's been sitting there for 500 years, so what can go wrong? Uh, 
our in insurance policy didn't go that far, so we, we would make sure, you know, we did want to make sure it's, it's good for another 500 years, at least, while it is at the Getty. And, uh, you know, this, all the final moments of that installation included many people. It was a few days, um, and here is a very relieved, <laughs> successful team <laughs> posing in front of it. Uh, <laughs> our preparators, conservators, mind makers, uh, designer, and our uh, dear colleagues uh, from uh, Florence, Fa um, Fabio and uh, Fabrizio. So the installation also provides wonderful opportunities, of course, and just these moments just before things go up uh, to, uh, to do a bit more study and do a closer look inside. Ken has shown a few images from inside of heads, as so we can learn so much just from that, and these are not usually views that are published. Um, or uh, to take um, uh, measurements, Ken always refers to this uh, picture as, as the, the, me, the, as the, the, the tailor of the gods. Um, <laughs> we didn't quite intend to, to dress him, and we were comfortable enough like, showing him nude as he is. <clears throat> And here's just a couple of, uh, of uh, impressions of how, what the in, um, installation looked like at Getty Center uh, until very recently. Section of you know, Hellenistic rulers and a section on, on, on bodies in particular. Uh, and this is a, a shot that, that Ken took the very last day um, of the exhibition. And, we, um, and it, it, it was indeed very popular there. And uh, I, we both wish uh, of course, the exhibition has much success uh, here at the National Gallery, and if your turnout uh, this afternoon is any indication, we are very confident about this. <laughs> and so, but at the very end, I wanted to leave you with the reason, you know, how did we actually go about and pick those 50 pieces in the show? And... You always have to sell your project. You have to tell it. <laughs> Why is this important for today's audience? And I said, like, go in it, find out. So here you go. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Well, it's 10 minutes after 3. Um, and I think we have a, a time for a couple of questions. And uh, we can ask questions of Jens and Ken. And even though I didn't ask Carol Matusha ahead of time if she'd ask, answer a question. If you have a, an absolutely um, uh, burning question about anything that you heard her name mentioned, I'm sure she would answer it too. Um, and we'll take questions for about 10 minutes. And then at 20 after or so, we will um, be out at the signing desk. And, um, and uh, or I guess our speakers would understand if you just want to get in the exhibition, there's no better support for what they've done if you run away. Um, but if you would like to answer a question, um, I will we'll ask Ken uh, to come up here. And Carol, would you mind? I mean, yeah, good. See? This is called collegiality. I didn't warn Carol. Um, so questions from the audience, do we have any? Yes, hand flew up. Why wasn't the seated boxer included in this exhibition? 
The question is why the seated boxer wasn't included in the exhibition here, here in Washington. Uh, he was one of those objects that was unable to travel to all three venues. The Roman authorities felt he needed to be back in Rome and couldn't be gone for an entire year. So as I mentioned at the beginning, there are pieces that are here only in Washington. There were some pieces only in Los Angeles and some pieces only in Florence. And we had hoped very much to extend the boxer's loan to Washington. And I know the team here worked very hard on that diplomatically, but we were unable to do that. And we're you know, all sorry we couldn't do that. Um, what, what, what you can see instead are, uh, you know, not only every, everything that was, you know, in the catalog, as I mentioned, there, there, there are four additional pieces here that weren't in Los Angeles or in Florence, the fabulous dancing fawn from the House of the Fawn at Pompeii, a runner from the Villa dei Papiri at Herculaneum, the Artemis, and um, the second of a pair of uh, lion riders uh, from southern Yemen uh, that are in the Freer Sackler, that one of which was too fragile to travel. So we had one in Los Angeles, but the pair, and they're really important to see as a pair are here. Um, but you know, the, the boxer is, is amazing, and uh, he, he's, he's a loss we all feel. Yes. <laughs> in fact, in January, is this correct? January 17th, George Kutsuflakis, who is in charge of the underwater um, uh, ephoria in Greece, will be coming to talk here about the kinds of fines that are turning up all the time, literally thousands of shipwrecks in the Aegean in unexpected places depending on things like the winds and the waves. And uh, I think you'll find it a really interesting talk. They found a lot more than they have brought up because he said, well, we don't, we don't have the time, we don't have the facilities, what would we do with it if we brought it up? So they are going and pinpointing the locations of these wrecks or of things that were jettisoned, and there are lots of them still coming out. I, I do want to just um, say is that when you look online to find out the programs, there is a full variety. And, and just to say it again, it's January 17th with um, George Kutsuflakis. Um, and uh, so this will be an opportunity, um, as he said, this is the only date I can come. Now, y you and I may have thought that there were four seasons in the world, you know, that for, <laughs> you know, like winter, summer. Well, actually, there's a fifth. It's called Greek shipwreck season. <laughs> and so he will be here in the period when he cannot be looking for shipwrecks. Um, before Greek shipwreck season starts. So maybe see you uh, Martin Luther King weekend.
question? There was six. Yes, sir. Does the um, thematic uh, chapters, as it were, in the exhibition change from venue to venue, uh, given the additions or subtractions that you're able to make in each location? Is the narrative that we're reading today here substantially the same or substantially in some ways quite different from what we might see in Los Angeles or uh, in Thank you. Uh, the question was how you know, different the, the setup of the exhibition is in each of the venues, if the thematic sections, are di if they change, or you know, how much difference there is. Uh, to say you know, quickly, substantially the same. But um, especially when it comes to the way you know, the show opens, you know, this, there was no question that at, at all venues that we wanted to open with that big empty pedestal. Uh, and uh, to, uh, to, to give a good sense uh, you know, of what we don't have. And then you go into the show and see, wow, and of what little what we have, a lot of it is here. Uh, so, so it's a device as much as you know, it's a very you know, good way of telling what is to come. Then there are, there are smaller adjustments just based on the architecture of the available spaces. Uh, that we had to work with. You see, like, you know, from the views at Getty Center, we have very open spaces there. Um, so, so, so transitions from one section to the other were very fluid. Um, and uh, here at the National Gallery, uh, there's another, you know, suite of, of rooms, and then the, the amount of, of objects you have to, to fit in. Uh, you adjust this as you know, and it was slightly different. But the, the core and the, the it is really uh, not that different. We sometimes uh, give a little bit more weight on on one particular topic, be it you know reproduction or be, be it you know athletes, for instance. But but these are just the um, I would say the sub the subtitles. The main sections remain the same, and you can tell. Uh, if you look in the, the, the printed catalog, uh, actually the catalog is organized uh, by these thematic sections. Sometimes two of them switch order, but it's not, it doesn't affect the show because it's not running through chronologically. The question was, what are the stumps on the herms? And the stumps, we call them bosses or terminals. Those herms are an archaic form. As Jens mentioned, they're aniconic. They're protective figures. I like to think of them as kind of ancient mezuzahs. They'd be in doorways or, or crossroads. And they could, uh, they could hold drapery, ribbons, garlands, but they're abbreviations for the human body. And they could take different forms. And later in the show, there is the head of the Doryphoros, which is like an old master copy that has very, very long ones. And I think that's almost a man archaism of the thing. Um, I'd just add to what Yent, Yent said about the uh, rearrangement of the show slightly. Uh, my brother's a filmmaker, and he told me years ago that every film is really three films, the one you imagine, 
the one you shoot, and the one that gets edited and released. And exhibitions are kind of the same way. And it was interesting, in Florence, we had to rearrange everything because we found out that some of the larger statues couldn't go through the small doorways in this palace, even though there were very large rooms, and we had to subdivide and rearrange things. So it, it's very interesting to see the same exhibition in different places, because uh, when you rearrange things, there are new relationships formed, and already just in a few days here, some of the recombinations have been quite illuminating for me, but the basic narrative you know, remain, remains there. Those other two questions? I was impressed by the painted backdrops for some of the sculptures that look like they're only part of this exhibition and not the other two. And how did that come about? Don, do you want to answer that question? No. I can. The uh, back, backdrops were chosen thematically. For example, there is um, a reproduction of a detached fresco of a, a Pompeian garden that you may have remembered from our exhibition about seven years ago, um, Pompeii in the Roman Villa. Um, we created with the, the Herms and with the Artemis and the Stag all of which would have been related to the landscape, or in the case of the Artemist, it was uh, like actually like the runner nearby or the marble faun, they would have been in a garden context. So um, our very talented designers reproduced what we actually had in the original um, seven years ago as, as a background to create this um, sort of mise-en-scene for the, for the works of art. And the last question that was here. Uh, very quickly, um, can you explain why we have mostly male figures displayed? <coughs> Carol? <laughs> <laughs> Not so many female figures that. There's, that's one, I think Ken touched on it in his part of the presentation, as one thing that we would like, you know, you know, people ask like, what are the things you couldn't get or would you would have liked to have, have in the show and you, you, know, you didn't, was, you know, to present more um, images of women. And uh, because we know um, that well, we, we know of a couple more that exist that we simply couldn't, couldn't uh, borrow on this occasion. We this, asked. The, the statue, yes, we tried. Um, the statue that, that, that Carol just mentioned, basically, you know, you, I visited, we, we visited together in a small museum in the island of Kalamos. I had no idea how they would get it out of the door. It looks like they built the museum around her. And, um, and that, you know, and, and, and on the other hand, uh, by chance, but there were, let's just face it, I think there were fewer women uh, probably uh, depicted even like in the corpus of honorific statues and portraits, although there was a lot more women depicted than we know uh, uh, from earlier periods. And we know that from those empty statue bases that still have inscriptions, and we know this from other uh, records, and we have names of, 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 of women, and sometimes independently, independently wealthy, you know, or priestesses, you know, 
patrons, uh, the citizens, they got Protestant queens at the, at the uh, Hellenistic courts. Um, and the same, the same thing, there's a new, uh, you know, it's almost a new class of images, particularly among the ruling families. And uh, there's just few in bronze. Uh, we find more of them in, in, in marble. Uh, we have uh, you know, a couple in the show. Look, in the, the first room has a beautiful image of a Ptolemaic queen or princess. And, um, and it would have been good to have them because they're also distinct in, in the way how they apply um, what level of the realism and expression you know, are applied in female portraits versus male ones, and it's a very interesting contrast. I have to refer you to the catalog <laughs> on some of this uh, to find out uh, more on these images that aren't in the show. Well, thank you, um, everybody. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 